Hello, my name is Robert Hills, and I'm a professor of medical statistics at the University of Oxford. For the past two decades, I've been involved in trials in acute myeloid leukemia through the UK National Cancer Research Institute group as statistician. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing the end of a trial. In particular, we are going to look at the reasons that some trials may end early and also what to do when a trial finishes, what analyses, reports, and documents are required, and what happens to the data after the report has been written. Development of this podcast has been funded by EHA. To listen to other related materials, please visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. At this point, In the trial life cycle, recruitment is finished and the job of writing up the results and the analyses and closing the trial down begins. The trial may have recruited to completion. It may have achieved its target sample size. It may have achieve the target number of events. However, not every trial gets all the way to the end. And there are a number of reasons why trials may terminate early. There could be issues with recruitment. And that covers a multitude of different underlying issues. There could be lack of recruitment because the condition is not common enough. In particular, when one applies the eligibility criteria for the treatment in question or for the trial, the number of patients that we thought were out there is not there. This is something that we should have picked up earlier. As part of the documentation and the monitoring of the trial and the interim reporting that we discussed in our previous podcast on communicating the details, interim reports to the trial management group and the trial steering committee will show that recruitment is falling behind. And at that point, it becomes possible to change the eligibility criteria. However, Other things may intervene to reduce the patient pool. In particular, one can think of the COVID pandemic where it may not be possible to get the patients into the centers to be able to give them the treatment. And this can change things considerably. Alternatively, there may not be the interest in the question that was originally thought. It may have been overtaken by events. It could be that there is a new and apparently more attractive therapy out there. And so the clinicians and patients have voted with their feet and gone off to a different trial, which is running in competition. On the other side of the coin, There could be a recommendation by the Data Monitoring Committee to close the trial. In other words, the closure is related to the outcome of the patients within the trial. Either 
that there are safety concerns or that there is either proof of efficacy or futility. In other words, there never will be sufficient evidence of efficacy to adopt the new treatment. These sound very different. And indeed, the situations are quite different, but it doesn't mean that the handling of the trial should be any different. Every trial deserves to be written up. The patients have committed themselves to providing data and indeed undergoing the experiment, and their data deserves to be heard. If there are safety issues or lack of efficacy issues, failing to write the trial up and publish it would mean that that information is not available. And so others may be doomed to follow the same path in future and come up with the same results. And ultimately, even if a trial is in itself inconclusive or negative, in other words, not significant, it can contribute to a meta-analysis for the question. The idea of a meta-analysis is a little outside the scope of this podcast, but fundamentally what it does is combine all the data on a given question together to give a more reliable answer. We only have to think about gemtuzumab azogamycin for acute myeloid leukemia to see the value of the meta-analysis. Of the trials that were run, there were a number of negative trials on survival, and indeed one trial that discovered an adverse early effect on toxicity. However, taking all the data together, there was a significant survival benefit overall, which was biggest in patients with favorable and intermediate risk disease. Failing to do that meta-analysis means that one would not be able to identify an effective and indeed approved treatment for AML. As such, a smaller trial, although not significant, when combined with other similar smaller trials, can provide a weight of evidence that demonstrates effectiveness of a treatment. Before we look at the process of publication and writing up and archiving of the data, let's have a think about what happens when a trial is closed early by a data monitoring committee. The data monitoring committee goes by a number of different names. It can be a DMC, Data Monitoring Committee, a DMEC, Data Monitoring and Ethics Committee, Independent Data Monitoring Committee, IDMC, or Data and Safety Monitoring Board, DSMB, all of which is a lot of alphabet soup, but fundamentally, whatever they are called, they have a very simple role, and that is to protect the trial and protect the patients by reviewing data from a trial as it accumulates. It's an independent group of experts with different disciplines. There will be clinicians on board, there will be statisticians on board, and in particular, there will be people with clinical trials experience. They weigh up the 
balance of benefits and harms or benefits and risks in a trial and determine whether or not the question remains ethical and unanswered. They will, they will recommend to the trial steering committee and the sponsor whether or not the trial continues in its current form, whether modifications are required, and whether or not it should close early. The decision to close early is an extreme one and generally is only taking when there is overwhelming evidence either of benefit, harm or futility. They have to be sure that the results will influence practice and will also not change with longer follow-up. They can use predetermined stopping rules for this. Uh, and these will either be that there is an extreme p-value in favor or against a particular treatment, or that the power, the chance of seeing a significant result becomes very low. In particular, the chance of seeing what we consider to be the minimum clinically relevant effect is very small. Closing for futility, again, is a matter of debate in the community. If no patients are being disadvantaged, why should one close the trial rather than get absolutely definitive evidence of the size of benefit by continuing to recruit? The question there could be balanced against whether or not there are other therapies available which show more promise, and in which case the precious resource of the patient can be better directed into a question that has a greater chance of showing a difference which will benefit future patients. So one gets to the point where one has a closed trial. What's important now is to ensure that the data are complete and correct. Part of the benefit of having reports to the Data Monitoring Committee and the Trial Steering Committee is that those interim reports require accurate data. One doesn't want to put the decision to close or continue with the trial down to data which is in any way potentially incorrect. So data cleaning has gone on throughout the course of the trial. But at the end of the trial, it's important to make sure that the data are cleaned as far as possible, any inconsistencies ironed out, and any missing data chased. At that point, one can lock the data set. And this will be, generally speaking, in terms of a randomized trial with a survival endpoint, once a certain number of deaths has been seen, certainly once a certain number of patients have reached a certain point. The analyses will have been defined already in the statistical analysis plan. And so the report to the data monitoring committee, which follows the statistical analysis plan, provides the skeleton of the study report and of the publication. 
At this point, one writes the clinical study report um, and submits the required data to the regulatory agencies, the ethics committee and the medicines agencies. And then one needs to write the paper. And there are issues here of good practice because there are a lot of analyses that can be done. A trialist in general has spent a good portion of time and a lot of heartache in running a trial. A trial is not an easy piece of work to do. And the reward at the end of it is quite a rich data set. But with a rich data set also comes a challenge. And that challenge is not to overinterpret the data. It's entirely possible to keep analyzing the data in different subgroups of patient. But one needs to think whether or not this is valid. The dangers of subgroup analysis are well known. Not only the more times one performs a statistical test, the more chance there is of seeing something by chance which is not there, but also the power to detect any difference is lower because the sample size is smaller. So this has two possible issues associated with it. For a treatment that is borderline significant, it could be that it is not significantly better either in men or women. And that, of course, is a meaningless and laughable concept but if one replaces men and women by biological markers, then it suddenly gains a spurious sense of scientific importance. What's important here is to analyze the trial and understand that subgroups can only be reported if they are different from the main body of the results. In other words, subgroup analyses have to be accompanied by appropriate tests for interaction. Otherwise, one could end up taking a completely negative trial and discovering that it works in one small subgroup of patients. The more potential subgroups one looks at, then the more chance there is of finding this. And indeed, this has been shown in the ISIS-2 trial in the Lancet, where an overall highly significant result was also analyzed by star sign. And for two star signs out of the year, there was no benefit for aspirin in the case of myocardial infarction. This, of course, is laughable. But again, if you replace that with a genetic mutation, it gains a certain degree of plausibility, which it should not have. So this warns us to guard against what's known as salami slicing, reporting the main paper, the main results, and then a number of subsidiary papers looking at subsets, different endpoints, and so on and so forth. Your statistical analysis plan is designed to tell you how the trial will stand or fall in terms of a positive result or not. Again, 
when reporting these things, dichotomizing p-values is a bad idea. And we'll come back to the idea of meta-analysis. If one took the gemtuzumab trials, most of which were not significant and says not significant means drug doesn't work, then the overwhelming evidence is that gemtuzumab is not a good drug, but the meta-analysis shows that there is a survival benefit. The reason that these re results were not significant is because the trials were small and that in fact, the effect was slightly more moderate than was expected and the power was therefore lower. This is why reporting results and interpreting them based upon confidence intervals rather than p-values is important. It's important to report these things in a timely fashion, of course. There are requirements for various agencies to submit data and final study reports. Um, but again, it's important to try and get the publications out as soon as the data are in an appropriate format and state, because this will enable the community to move forward to the next question. And importantly, if this changes the standard of care, this trial will have a knock-on effect on all the other trials, because the other trials may now be randomizing patients against the substandard of care, because this trial has shown that actually the best available treatment at the minute is the new therapy. Having published the data, it's not the end of the story. The trial needs to be archived. This means that one can go back over the data and over the documentation for a period of time. And this varies according to funding requirements and indeed country. Uh, and whether or not the trial is run in adults or children. But the data and the trial documentation need to be available for several years following the closure of the trial in order for them to be inspected if needed. What's also important is to put the data somewhere where it can be found later. Because one may want to contribute to a meta-analysis, and it is a very good thing to contribute to a meta-analysis. But if your trial is the first trial in a given area, it will only be once the last trial in the area is completed that the meta-analysis will take place. And at that point, sharing the data through a data sharing agreement will enable the totality of the evidence to be weighed up. So, it may be that holding on to the data is important even beyond the mandated length of archiving. Again, it may be that it's useful to be able to continue with long-term follow-up. The UK AML trials, for example, have a policy of following up everybody for many years, and this allows long-term outcomes to be looked at. This is going to, I think, probably become more important as time goes on, because with novel therapies, one is not necessarily clear of what the long-term side effects are. 
In particular, we know that radiotherapy, for example, is not without long-term risks. Anthracyclines are not without long-term risks. It's not clear that as one changes one's treatment modality, these risks necessarily change later on. And this is something where long-term follow-up is absolutely crucial because it can help with the long-term balance of benefits and risks and change the equation, particularly in the case of children, where a moderate survival benefit early on could be offset by later problems. Because children, of course, have a much longer life trajectory following their treatment. So in this podcast, we've looked at the idea of what happens when a trial finishes and the importance of making sure that the data remains available for other people, that the data are written up in accordance with the original plan, and that the important necessary reports are given to the appropriate regulatory authorities. Again, the idea here is to protect the patient in the future and also to understand that what happens in the first five years, for example, is not the end of the story for the patient. And so we have a duty to continue to follow these patients up to see how they're doing to ensure that their long-term survivorship is also an issue with us. I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast. More material is available via the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org.